Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and in this episode, we'll delve into how journalists can investigate the hidden corners of the climate crisis using open source intelligence. To understand how to uncover stories and provide OSINT evidence for your reporting, we caught up with two experts experienced in the field, Sam Leon and Ben Hubble. Sam is a co-founder of Datadesk, a consultancy that provides investigative research at the heart of the climate crisis, focusing on commodities. He is formerly of Global Witness, a nonprofit that exposes the links between corruption, natural resources, and conflict, where he led their investigative journalism work. Ben Hobel is an investigative reporter from the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zutang. Prior to this, he worked for The Economist, The FT, and ENT Magazine, where he honed his OSINT skills for data-led investigations, focusing on an array of stories, including corruption and the environment. The pair talk us through some stories they worked on, including their approach to these kind of investigations, focusing on topics like tracking the usage of Russian fossil fuels through complex supply chains, to uncovering how mining for rare earth minerals is impacting the environment and health of local communities in Latin America. They also provide some useful advice on developing an OSINT mindset, along with the best data sources, tools, and training resources out there. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Sam Leon and Ben Hubble now. Ben and Sam, welcome to Conversations with Data. Great to be here. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on today. So the point of today's podcast is we're going to be looking at environmental investigations and um, open source investigations. So I know you worked on an investigation with LeMond and Global Witness investigating the French oil company Total's connection to military jet fuel supply chains in Russia. And I wonder if you could just give us an overview of the story and you know, tell us how you were involved and, you know, what open source tools you used to sort of frame that analysis. Yeah. So this was a, this was a story um, that uh, was published um, in Le Monde uh, about um, just, just under a year ago. Uh, now um, I worked on it while I was at um, Global Witness and they have a fantastic team uh, working specifically on Russian fossil fuels, and this was this was one of the investigations that we undertook while I was heading up that team. Essentially, we found that a gas project owned by Total Energies was um, linked to a supply chain that was basically um, providing feedstock to a Gazprom-owned refinery that was producing jet fuel uh, for the Russian military, including to air bases uh, where um, Russian military jets that were used to sort of bomb Ukraine. Uh, were based. Um, and ultimately, there were sort of three components to this story. Um, there was rail freight data that at that time was being provided by a, via um, some uh, commercial commodity platforms. Uh, there was satellite imagery uh, to verify the presence of uh, specific kinds of jets at air bases. And there was data sets um, of R- Russian military air bases. And it was a question really of um, connecting where we knew uh, Western joint ventures existed um, that were producing this feedstock or gas condensate um, and how that was then moving uh, via rail um, primarily 
two refineries um, that were producing the jet fuel. So kind of making those making those links and establishing um, particularly which European companies were connected to those supply chains and, and, and total energies uh, was was one of them. Obviously, this is kind of this was all um, in the wake of uh, the full scale invasion of Ukraine. So. Um, you know, it was particularly significant and, and potentially very damaging uh, for Total in the, in the wake of this investigation. Um, not long after it was published, they did divest from um, uh, the, the the gas field um, in question. They they sold it. Um, they denied uh, that their that any of their gas compensate that was produced from the project uh, was going into uh, military jet fuel. Um, but what's been particularly pleasing about sort of this investigation that it enabled sort of other European journalists to scrutinise the fuel supply chains in Russia of other European oil and gas um, companies. So for in, in Germany, for instance, our friends at Paper Trail Media and De Spiegel replicated our approach to find links between um, Vintershall's operations in Russia and military uh, fuel supply chains. So um, we were able to be sort of fairly transparent and we worked with uh, our colleagues in the anti-corruption data collective to share some of this rush this uh, russian rail freight data uh, more widely um where other groups were able to sort of take forward the methodology and, and, and find other interesting stories wow that's quite impactful um and especially helpful that other journalists could replicate kind of your methodology yeah it was um it was it was a very good example of how kind of um you know, being being transparent about the way in which you approach a given story can can further other investigative leads, even those that you don't necessarily have the um, capacity or expertise. I mean, I'm I'm a particular fan of these projects where um, you might be able to you know elucidate or work with one particular partner on on one on one supply chain or one company, and then you can hand over to other journalists who know much more about, you know, in this case, Vintershall than, 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 than we did. So you kind of get local experts um, who, you know, know those companies inside out and have maybe been working them on for years to, to take that methodology and apply it to in a different national context. Absolutely. And Ben, uh, you conducted an investigation when you were working for ENT Engineering and Technology, looking at how lithium firms in Chile are depleting water supplies with a cheap mining technique that is really compromising the country's environment. And on the one hand, of course, we need lithium for energy efficiency and electric vehicles, et cetera. But on the other hand, the impact is really problematic for people on the ground or nearby these sites. And I wonder if you might kind of talk to us about how you came up with this idea for this investigation and, and how you use satellite imagery and machine learning to report on this. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the topic of uh, of rare earth uh, metals um, is 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 one that uh, he kept on on growing um, from think tanks uh, to environmental organizations and to activists. Um, it, it comes back to the very 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 question of um, how fast and how um, adoptive uh can we grow um sort of the whole industry of of, of green technology right so that is um 
uh, electric vehicles, uh, it's uh, wind turbines, it's everything that that powers this new economy, right? Um, and from there on, uh, you you can ask questions whether um, this <laughs> this development uh, is uh, is basically harming other people. Um, with any sort of, I mean, we, I think there was a few waves in in the last couple of hundred years where um, where uh, the industrial revolution was not per se good for everyone, although it was perceived as such uh, for uh, a few uh, who who got really rich by it. Um, it was the same here. Um, so if we think about um, this area of, of lithium, uh, that lithium has to come from somewhere and then goes into uh, into battery production. Um, same with cobalt, um, same with uh, other uh, rare, rare earth materials. And um, if you have to mine um, so much of it, <laughs> you have somebody probably suffering from it. Um, with lithium, it's, it's pretty clear. There's uh, other South American... Um, areas, but with these open um, um, open salt brine uh, uh, pools, um, where basically you you dry um, the material, uh, and then in the end you have uh, this uh, this this residue that you can then um, uh, use for for processing. You need a lot of water for that, and that's sort of contradictory uh, to have it uh, in in one of the or the most dry places in the world to do something like that. Um, so you know whether you have um, that kind of operation or you have uh, I don't know a factory producing beer in a, in the desert. It always will come to the question like um, is water being taken from uh, from local societies and, and and people who need it more. So um, yeah, so that was sort of the the, the first thing, um, and then uh, satellite images was part of this. Um, I'm I'm not only doing satellite imagery analysis but in this case it was really quite uh, quite stark the the difference between um previous uh, industrial um yeah, setup and and like you know a few years later um within a couple of years um this whole network of brine ponds in the desert of of chile grew immensely and uh uh we could see that um there was also the the component of um, scientific research, uh, which looked into it. Uh, sort of uh, um, with satellite images, you can see how dry or how wet um, ground is. Um, you sometimes don't have that sort of um, granularity, but you can do see uh, what happens after a flood, what happens uh, uh, in 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 very dry seasons, and where do water go? Um, and and so we did that, and we came up with the results of um, okay. So, Things exploded, operations exploded in that uh, SQM uh, um, um, mine, uh, which is it's a sort uh, in, in in its operation, and um, it was very clear that um, uh, from the data of uh, how much water they use, it goes away from sort of the local population and there was uh, also a political uh, aspect of it um such a big uh brine or a, such a big operation is not uh just uh um you know it has to be uh also checked off from the government and and so um that was also a political part of it um and yeah we had like some some leaked documents we had uh Obviously, the satellite uh, analysis, and we had um, uh, also help from some organization that uh, Space Now. I don't. It's it's one of those uh, satellite uh, analysis companies that uh, are now um, 
uh, often to be found um, supporting these kind of investigations um, uh, who, who then uh, algorithmically um, analyze also data and turn images or pixels into, in, into, uh, into data sheets. Um, so yeah, that, that was, and it was something that you could pr probably replicate in other parts of the world because, um, whether it's mining or whether it's, uh, open brine ponds like this, uh, it will eventually with, with such high demand of, uh, of, of reaching, uh, a green economy, there will obviously be some victims uh, along the way. So, um, and, and that's uh, uh, usually the victims uh, nobody talks about. And we as investigative journalists look at, at, at these. Absolutely. And I mean, there was a piece recently in the Continentalist looking at rare earth minerals and mining in um, Myanmar. And there you have not just the environmental destruction, but conflict and all the corruption that happens and that comes with conflict. Uh, so it's it seems like People from the global north are benefiting from these green technologies, but the mining process and the impact of that is, yeah, hurting the most vulnerable. Um, now, Sam, you contributed to an investigation looking at how a U.S. oil multinational funded by the Scottish government exported oil and gas drilling equipment from Montrose to Russia three months after ministers called on businesses in Scotland to stop trading with the country. And I wonder, how did this investigation come about for you? And um, how did you approach it um, with, with the publication? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, if I may, I'd just like to sort of um, go back to what you you guys and Ben was, were, were talking about a minute ago. I mean, I think that um, rare earth mining and the ability to identify um, pools that are associated with certain types of mining is is a fascinating application of kind of like satellite imagery to um environmental journalism it it, it resonates with a project that um i worked on with a colleague of mine when i was working at global witness ben air where we were looking at heavy rare earth mining in tara the 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 in myanmar in kachin state on the border with china and, and showing that kind of there'd been this vast vast expansion um of heavy rare earth mines uh, in the last few years that was pretty much driving all, all the additional um, demand for heavy rare earths um, globally um, that are used in, you know, um, electric car, um, permanent magnets, essential to their motors, as well as things like wind turbines and and, and actually missile systems. Um, but we were able to use kind of satellite imagery to identify the expansion of pools in, in what sounds like quite a similar way to Ben did. So it's, there's there's a really interesting kind of synergy there in terms of the the story, Tara, that you that that you asked about. Um, so yes, this was one that we worked on as data desk uh, with my colleague uh, Louis a couple of months ago. Um, well, was a bit longer than that. Um, now again, looking at uh, Russian supply chains, I think. They're of interest from a climate perspective. Obviously, they're interest they're they're of interest now because of um, the war and and particularly the sort of amount of money that the Russian state gets from its fossil fuel exports being forty percent. Obviously, the EU and the US have taken action to sanction uh, some of those commodities, um, uh, not gas at the moment, but but certainly oil. Um, and in order as an attempt to sort of cut off revenues uh, to Russia. Um, and uh, prevent it continuing to kind of, uh, well, prevent some of its ability to wage war. 
Um, but it's also interesting from a climate perspective, given that some of the, you know, given how significant a oil and gas exporter um, Russia is, and particularly with a view to some of its major projects uh, in the Arctic. Um, so one of the projects we, we, we've been very immersed in, a lot of our work involves analysing detailed customs data and trade data, and we've been looking quite a lot uh, in recent months um, and Russian customs data, and one of the projects that emerges is um, being a very big importer um, from all around the world, from from China, but but from Europe as well, um, and the US is a project called Arctic LNG2. Um, it's a huge um, development for liquefied natural gas uh, that is being um, uh, built near near Murmansk, um, and it is not yet online. Um, Actually, Putin was involved in a sort of opening ceremony where the first component of it was was sent out to be floated near the resource base, where it will can where it will sort of cool down the gas so it can be exported globally, um, either via um, the sort of northern sea route or um, round uh, round Europe. Um, and uh, one of the companies that we spotted that was sort of supplying equipment to this um, was. Uh, Baker Hughes and supplying via um, Montrose in Scotland, and as you said, Tara, this was this was problematic because obviously the Scottish government had called on companies, I think, at the beginning of March in 2022, to no longer um, trade with Russia. But I think it's illustrative of a much broader problem that we are export, uh, exploring. I mean, Arctic LNG two is 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 listed as a carbon bomb, um, which means effectively that will the, the gas that it produces will emit over a billion tonnes of CO2 over its lifetime, over its expected lifetime. Um, but, you know, many of these major projects, particularly those in difficult conditions, um, have European engineering or US engineering partners. Um, and obviously, you know, this is... This is this is problematic as many of them try and withdraw in the face of sanctions, um, but they remain very, very closely entangled because technology is is their technology, their patented technology is widely used. They signed long-term supply agreements, um, and uh, as it's very very challenging um, for them to decouple uh, decouple from the sort of Russian energy industry. Um, and while companies like Baker Hughes and Schlumberger um, have made a lot of noises about getting out of Russia and solidarity with Ukraine. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, some of these kind of some of this trade data tells a somewhat different story about their continued engagement uh, with the um, Russian energy industry. Right. And I think it might be interesting to sort of shift to talking about the data sources you both use. Like, I, I know that you've worked on so many different investigations, but maybe just talk to us about like when it comes to investigating commodities and supply chains, like what are some of the go-to sources that you find yourself regularly visiting, um, Sam, for instance? Yeah. Um, so let's think. So I think one of the, one of the ones that I really like and, and it's relevant to sort of what, Ben was picking up on there and talking about in terms of remote sensing is EO browser. Um, it's, I believe, um, it's it's all part of this kind of like Sentinel Hub um, suite of tools. And it brings together um, not only kind of imagery from uh, the Sentinel missions, but also from Landsat, also some of the freely available high to medium resolution planet imagery that they've made 
available um, through a collaboration with the Norwegian government in order to map deforestation and some radar data that you can get from Sentinel-1 um, into sort of one single place. That's one of the, one of the challenges with satellite imagery is that there's so many providers um, is searching it all. Um, and, they're, and they've got some great tools there in order to kind of animate um, changes that have been occurring into time-lapse time lapse, time lapse GIFs or videos that can be a really good way of doing your analysis, but also and, and, and spotting changes, but also for kind of visually illustrating your stories, particularly if they're online. Um, so that's one I would say, I mean, although not strictly open, um, as in they're not free, I think it's worth a kind of couple of sort of honorable mentions to, um, or particularly to some of the trade data providers, the detailed trade data providers, Sinoimex is one we use quite regularly, which is a Chinese provider. And are these often like quite pricey or, or are they open source and you don't need to pay for them or are there just different models of payment? <laughs> yeah, there are different models. They usually have different subscription models. So yes, um, Sinoimex is on the, on the cheaper end, but it's still not free, but um, uh, I think it's, um, they are, it is really what's, what's good about them in particular, they have global coverage. Um, obviously whether or not you have detailed customs data is going to vary from country to country, but they, they are one of the cheaper providers. Um, um, although, although not completely free and there are different tiers of access. And Ben, I wonder, um, what are some of your sources, particularly for geospatial data, uh, when you're doing your invest environmental investigations? For the geospatial part, um, it's it, you know it, it's it's definitely Google Earth Pro. Um, <clears throat> it's it, it sort of there's a funnel of how to work these investigations as uh, as Sam also knows. Um, but you start off with like a hunch, um, and you check the, the first uh, you check out uh, what's on Google Earth uh, Pro, um, where you it's a desktop version where you can like sort of click through some of the previous uh, historical images, and and sometimes you just know roughly ever after every couple of months you have a have a new picture uh from airbus or uh, maxa um and then you have some sort of like idea what you're looking for yeah um and then you got to be really lucky and then you like consult uh more frequent data less uh granular data which is on uh on sentinel 2 and, and and so on so so eo browser is, is, is eo browser is your first uh contact point and then you sort of dig in and 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 then you if you're looking for something that is going to be happening or you just have a hunch it's happening right now you you may invest a little bit time uh, and money uh, into into ordering some of these so if you have a little bit of a budget you can uh, sort of task um, a satellite to take a picture and and uh, or you take the route of uh, analyzing the the previous historical images um, and then you can mix all this, right? You can, um, obviously for environmental investigations, you have, um, supply chains. So that means, uh, truck or rail, or somebody has to ship it. Um, uh, and then you go to, uh, marine traffic or other sort of, uh, uh, sort of these, uh, shipping or vessel, vessel, uh, tracking data, AS data, um, or you can sort of understand where container go, uh, container goes. Um, so, um, so for example, if you have, if you know the number of a mask container of, uh, log, logged wood, 
you check out um, where that stuff goes from country A to country B. Um, and then you compare it with, uh, as uh, some says, um, with, with sort of import-export data. Uh, and with that, all stuff putting into one pot, you can get a really good picture of what's happening. Um, and it's exactly that data that is usually excluded from sort of um, financial analysis. And, and I think that's where our strengths lie. We 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 run everything into the mix. And in the end, we come up with something that is sort of, real intelligence um, of uh, what's actually happened on the ground. You could see that um, in in sort of uh, built phases uh, before uh, wars. There was a really good um, uh, report from The Economist recently about sort of how do countries prepare for war and what they need is energy. They need uh, fuel and they need, um, uh, they need to stack basically stuff up before they invade or before they're they, 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 they waging wars. And uh, that kind of intelligence is also something uh, intelligence agencies look at uh, as well as we should uh, as, as journalists. Um, because they indicate something is going to happen. You don't know exactly what's happening, but um, these data streams, uh, what we call noise uh, in the data, will 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 give you some indication something's happening, and that's what we use as a hunch. Right, and you did a piece on short haul flights and private jets. Like, what was your data source for that? So, um, just to sort of give you the context of it. Um, you know, um, private jets, um, they account for um, uh, comparably uh, quite a little um, contribution, but they're, they're, they're massively um, uh, polluting, right? So if you have a private jet, uh, you fly from A to B, um, you uh, don't sit with 200 other passengers in there. You usually sit there with one or three or five or six colleagues in there, right? And and that is uh, really really bad for the environment because the per person uh, account uh, of of carbon um, and other uh, emissions is is really really high. Uh, the data for that comes from these uh, flight tracking services um, that uh, um, we use regularly. So flight r- radar or um, there's um, other as uh, AD, uh, the exchange is uh, is a, is a is a source um, of um, publicly collected or crowdsourced information um, on these uh, planes and their movements. And uh, so we put it all together. We compared it with sort of official responses of, uh, of authorities, and um, yeah, we confirmed that uh, this is this is quite bad. And there's also like company fleets, you know, and sometimes these uh, these company executives don't fly only to appointments they have to attend, but also perhaps to uh, a holiday resort uh, where the company doesn't even have any any sort of branch. So um, so there's a lot of uh, explosive stuff in there because people wonder um, whether all this stuff is uh, is necessary. Absolutely. And, um, you know, covering environmental wrongdoing and corruption um, requires, you know, a person to develop a certain mindset. And I just wonder if um, both of you could sort of talk us through your investigative approach and uh, how OSINT ties in with that, because this these tools are changing all the time. There's new data out there or we lose access to data. So how do you, yeah, how do you develop that mindset? Yeah, so, I mean... 
the what part of the way I see it is that you've got lots of authoritative bodies. Um, you know, you can think of someone like the International Energy Agency out there giving these, giving you like nice clean data sets on big macro macro statistics on the trade, for instance, in the types of commodities that we look at. But um, I suppose for looking at environmental wrongdoing, you often want to sort of put a microscope or a magnifying glass on a particular set of trades or maybe where there's fraud going on or perhaps there's leaks or spills associated with something um, that have been unreported or maybe a company's making claims about this, you know, flash new carbon capture project that they've built and um, that they're, you know, the rate at which they're capturing carbon doesn't add up. Um, something like that, you know. So, um, and I think this is where OSINT comes into its own. You know, there's no, where there's no real um, proto, you know, established protocols for collecting data that will tell you that exactly. There's no sort of ready-made, oven-ready data set that you can take to sort of illustrate this. And it's where you need to get creative. It's the domain of being creative. It's constantly changing. Um, you're using alternative data sources, data sources that perhaps a company themselves, you know, go beyond just what they disclose and um, and maybe about kind of um, monitoring them in ways that they have less control over. Um, so in order to get this forensic, forensic picture, you need to reach for things like satellite imagery, um, things that are, you know, orbiting the Earth um, from the outside um, and taking pictures from different angles uh, with different uh, different frequencies in order to establish things, even in the event that it's under cloud cover. This is where you put in freedom of information requests um, or using sort of other lesser known sort of alternative data sources. Um, but I suppose what I'm saying is that to really get a forensic picture of a specific trade or facility or project and put a magnifying glass up to it um, and scrutinize it, you need to use OSINT sources that are outside of the sort of company disclosure regimes or international protocols for kind of that already exist for kind of um, providing a you know commonplace transparency. Um, if I just may add um, one more thought to it, it's really OSINT really starts there um, where authorities or previous research really ended and. Um, that is usually when um, you know what's happening and uh, nobody else could find the smoking gun for uh, for a hunch. Uh, we do know that there's ship-to-ship -ship transfers happening of oil and there's sanction-breaking behavior um, at the open sea. And uh, uh, if you then not use like these advanced or these uh these additional data streams um you won't find out about it um and the other thing is like you know things are also moving on right so um maybe last year you found uh, uh evidence of of an illegal sale or of a of an illegal um behavior at the open sea then a year later um you don't find something like that and then you have to come up with something like uh i don't know settle it uh aperture radar uh, or another way of like spotting uh, wrongdoing uh, at a certain place. So there's always like the next level. So crime groups, um, they they develop too. We had this example of uh, illegal logging in, uh, in in Eastern Europe, you know, um, they're, the, these people, this is a big industry. They're not stupid and um, they're not just openly cut. Uh, huge areas. Um, now they're like uh, cutting smaller areas, uh, so that uh, 
like people like us not like noticing so well um, that something is happening at a, at a big scale. So, so there's always like new techniques evolving and, uh, um, but you know, it's, it's not only satellite data. Um, there's, there's so many other streams of data um, that you just have to apply uh, yeah, cleverly. And, and, and that's also the fun of it um, that you sort of, Think around the corner. Um, sometimes it's just, as you say, collecting data from um, making odd calls um, or <laughs> telephone calls, or you look into uh, open source intelligence data from IP addresses or local Wi-Fi signals. Um, if there's something happening on the ground, if there's like people in the middle of uh, of a forest doing something they shouldn't do there, you know, things like that. It, it, there's not a clear example of that, but it's it's just the sum of it to think around what can give you smoking uh, smoking proof of, of activity. One data source that's coming up a lot and we're seeing more and more journals using is remote sensing. I wonder if either of you could break this down for, for me and explain sort of how this can be applied to environmental investigations and uncovering wrongdoing. Like what kinds, what kinds of stories would you be using remote sensing for? And from an OSINT perspective. We talked a fair bit about satellite imagery, which is kind of one, one kind of uh, remote, you know, remote sensing data. Um, but obviously you have things like drone footage, you have, you know, synthetic aperture radar. So it's, I'd say there's kind of three ways in which it's useful for um, my research, um, it lets you track things sometimes that you can't see or are difficult to see. So you have more and more satellites that are able to check for the presence of particular types of gases. So in environmental reporting, obviously, carbon dioxide is a particularly interesting one, um, as is methane. You know, there's a big drive to um, get the oil and gas industry to clean up leaks in its infrastructure and its pipeline systems at its um, facilities. Um, and you know, this is there are now satellites available. I mean, run by commercial providers, but also by um, NASA and the European Space Agency that can um, enable you to monitor for this kind of thing. And and they, those can be the the source of stories in themselves. Um, you also, I suppose, if you're thinking about things that are changing, um, but as Ben put it quite nicely, that you don't necessarily have the smoking gun for because all you have is anecdotal saying someone saying, "Oh, look, there used to be." Um, you know, this forest used to be bigger or there used to be more, the tree coverage was was thicker. You can use satellite imagery analysis, you know, um, to check for the greenness of vegetation and actually quantify how much has this changed to be able to document um, deforestation, for instance. Uh, you also quite simply, you often get views of places that are difficult or dangerous to visit. You know, talking about this investigation into the heavy rare earth mining industry in Kachin, um, it was very, very difficult to get access to it because it was controlled uh, by militia groups um, and, you know, it, it was not accessible. Um, so, the, so satellite imagery was one of the ways and, and we did tasks and imagery. Um, so a satellite to go over and, and take pictures was one of the ways we could see um, these, these mines. Um, obviously, if we're talking about ship to ship transfers again, out in the open sea, 
difficult for you to um, get a boat and be looking around, you know, for all the all the tankers that are coming close together. So you need to get creative with how you use remote sensing data and how you use the historical archive from the many, many, many different satellites that are out there to find the ones that might be um, intersecting with the ship tracks uh, that you're interested in. Um, so it's a really, really useful source for also validating other data. You know, you might have seen, hey, we think there's been a ship to ship transfer because we can see these two um, shipping tracks, but if we've looked at, say, marine traffic, come together for a particular amount of time. But, you know, it's even better if you can find a photo of that um, and you can know, okay, this was, this, this data is robust and, and this is telling us. Um, uh, this is telling us the right story and you can have even more confidence in your conclusions. I got really interested in, in three areas. Um, one is sort of the mixing of different blends of, uh, of satellite uh, data. Um, I think it's quite interesting that um, you can, as you say, um, see more than the, the visual image tells you. Um, so um, the background of it, remote sensing is sort of a stage up from just the picture, right? Um, so you make sense of the pixels in, in, a, picture, in, in, a, in a satellite picture um, through uh, light that you can usually not see or maybe infrared light and, and so on. Um, so you're really making sense of, sense of that and also nightlight. Um, so um, there's this whole category um, which gets more and more um, interesting to uh, to analyze uh, uh, is high uh, resolution nightlight imagery. So if you know that uh, something shouldn't be there uh, in a forest or uh, out at sea, um, you can now now do see that because uh, everybody they might not have a tracking signal, but they might ha have or need light to uh, to navigate. So uh, you can find that, um, and that can then serve you as a proof. Or a smoking gun for something. So, so that's quite interesting um, development. The other thing is um, uh, more and more uh, satellite companies or remote sensing companies use use video now. So um, instead of just shooting a, a single uh, shot and give you, uh, they they develop some sort of like a, a video capability, um, seeing change um, of uh, events, um, you know, as they occur. Um, also interesting is, uh, you know, the mixing of, of blends of satellite data um, then shows you, for example, a uh, a growth of, of algae. Um, algae uh, is an indicator of, of, of pollution. Um, so there's a lack of, uh, of air uh, in water bodies. And, and then you can, and where does that come from? It may come from a poultry farm that is nearby. It may come from any other sort of uh, pollutant. Um, and that's obviously um, then interesting for us. Um, and I do remember there was a story, uh, or it was a few stories about um, the algae growth in, uh, in the UK and in some of the the major um, water waterways. Um, um, and a couple of uh, kilometers up the hill or up the stream, um, there was a big poultry farming uh, polluting, and and so you can see that we in Germany we had uh, Germany and Poland we had a big uh, problem with. Uh, uh, a uh, a big river that was polluted uh, last year. Um, lots of uh, fish died, and, um, and algae growth played a role. So we looked into satellite images imagery where upstream in in Poland um, uh, algae grew, and then we could sort of like understand which company because that was the hunch, um, or which which factory um, was sort of. Um, 
partly a part of that. Uh, and you could see like after that, after one particular one um, upstream, there was fewer or less algae growth. So you could, you know, get a picture of that. And um, the third area is, um, yeah, you know, you have as an environmental damaging factor is plastic. And uh, you uh, may or may not as like still, you know, it helps you to understand plastic waste uh, in water bodies near uh, sites um, with remote sensing uh, capabilities. Um, it's not perfect and nothing is perfect in this, in this world because uh, we can't see as we humans can see high resolution images with that but um, we we do get an image of of where plastic growth or pollution happens um so i'm hoping as uh, the capabilities of resolution get better um the as you say the, the the types of things we can see on on satellite data um we we will understand more what's happening on the ground with these with these capabilities right fascinating and i wonder if both of you could sort of share some of the data dilemmas you come across when working on these type of investigations and using OSID to further your investigations. Yeah, I mean, there's lots. I mean, if as we're on the topic of kind of remote sensing and satellite imagery, um, and for sort of listeners who are kind of keen to already doing this or coming across their own obstacles, obviously cloud coverage. Uh, remains a sort of a, a big challenge in terms of if you're trying to get a picture of the ground. I think it's where something like um, synthetic aperture radar um, becomes very, very useful um, because it can sort of penetrate through clouds. And, and there's been lots of interesting work we've done recently, but that Bellingcat have publicized on their ability to sort of monitor the presence of tankers at ports um, through cloud covered by using synthetic aperture radar. Um, so it's um that can sort of help you kind of overcome that dilemma to a degree but obviously sometimes you do need that kind of um visual uh snapshot and not just the sort of data that you can get from um from the sort of radar images and so that's so that's one i think i mean another one is is cost and i think so a lot of this satellite imagery can be quite costly to acquire um, obviously, to task satellite images um, can does does cost something. Um, I think going back to what Ben was saying earlier, really, to start starting with Google Earth Pro is always a, a great because it, basically what you have there is the most high resolution imagery you can possibly find. Um, so usually from uh, Maxar or Airbus, um, and you know that's made freely available to you via that platform, basically. So. Uh, that's one way of getting around it, although you're not going to have as extensive a historical archive of that imagery as if you were a direct subscriber um, to some of their services. Right. And Ben? For anybody starting in this, um, I have, uh, I guess, three points to highlight. Uh, one is really learn from scientific research because those folks have done this stuff for for decades. Um I'm particularly referring to uh, also satellite images, uh, satellite analysis. Um, if you look into into papers of environmental damage and pollution, um, I would say most of these these studies have something to do with satellite images um, because they looked into it, um, and you can learn a lot from that. So start with that. If you have a problem, 
look into scientific research. Um, the second bit I would say is don't underestimate uh, OSINT or don't restrict OSINT to merely uh, sort of the, the visual bits uh, and data bits. Uh, OSINT is also uh, in the traditional sense, uh, finding a target, uh, investigating a target and uh, taking, taking real intelligence from data sources like social media. Um, we do have uh, the ability through social media to find sources. Um, and if you have an environmental investigation and you, for example, have a mine or workers or injustice at a, at a, at a certain place, do try to use social media because everybody is now, even in like remote countries, uh, um, South America, Africa, they're all on social media. And if you want to find these sources, do use that kind of OSINT to identify people who can tell you firsthand. That was something that that we couldn't do 20 years ago. Uh, if you wanted to find a local source in, in Africa, you had to be there. Uh, now you might find that person on social media and, and you reach out and understand um, are these allegations against the company valid or um, so that uh, that is that is a central point. Um, and then generally just try to stay open um, to uh, um, to all kinds of uh, means and measures. Uh, environmental OSINT um, goes into company research to uh, leaks. Um, we work here at the Süddeutsche uh, Zeitung with a lot of leaks um, and environmental uh, uh, investigations can come out of uh, open source leaks um that is also prime uh for uh for open source investigations so so uh remote sensing is not the only is not the only great source right and uh, um sam i wonder you know what your advice is for journalists who are maybe new to this space and you know want to get started in environmental investigations using OSINT, where, where do you advise they start? How, how should they begin? Well, look, if you've already covered the environment, um, so if you're coming from this maybe from more, more of a news-based perspective, you probably got one of the most important things already, which is the network of human sources and um, probably a whole bag of like interesting leads. Um, so you have some ideas on where to look. And then it's just a question of really being curious uh, so obviously we're OSINT digital investigation specialists. So, um, and anyone embarking on that type of that, you know, way into a problem and it's, it's one, one way of many, um, you know, take stock of the fact that it can be overwhelming at the start. It's, as you said, Tara, it's a, there's always a new tool for doing X, Y, and Z. There's a multitude of different, um, data sources for doing any one thing. Um, but I think people sometimes assume that you have to be, have more specialist knowledge than than is actually required to get a good story you know some people say for instance oh you know i have to go out and learn to code or something but in fact there are a lot of tools out there like the ones we've mentioned like um like eo browser for instance or just being very very good at you know using social media to find sources and knowing how to really um eke out the most of that by using smart searching techniques um that are all relatively easy to use but you know very powerful once you've invested a few hours in getting to know the interface and without a doubt contain many many stories that are yet to be told you know who are the leaders in in this field who you guys look up to and you follow and you know what are the organizations that are at the forefront of this whether they're 
activists or campaigners or journalists? Yes, I, I look up to a lot of bloggers. Um, these people, uh, men and women, you know, often just writing next to their work a blog and they're doing uh, things that are odd and weird and new. And and so that's where I got a lot of, uh, of my inspiration. Um, um, there is obviously news media um, that does it really well, but you know, uh, as well as I, you know, uh, to get it through an editor, uh, things have to be already understood, and um, and so so at the very very forefront, uh, uh, independent people who may come from a completely different field, and try things out. Um, we have um, people. Um, there's one guy who who does satellite investigations in North Korea. I'm a huge fan. Um, it, it's it's so good and so well done, and with complete free open source. Uh, investigation it's just he he knows where to look um there are people from think tanks like aspie the uh the australian think tank uh um such as nathan ruth rusa who do, does extremely uh thorough investigations into all kinds of stuff um i do look up obviously to the new york times in terms of production um but also in terms of uh, intelligence because they're very close on the on the news cycle yeah, from, from I mean, I'd agree agree with, with with much of that. And I think kind of following um individuals is is um who, who perhaps have more freedom to kind of um and to pursue interesting avenues is good. I'm also a fan of what Lighthouse reports are doing, particularly their work on sort of pesticides and food systems. Um I like the Center for Research um, on Energy and Clean Air that are based out of Helsinki, particularly some of the work that they're doing on uh, the international oil trade. Um, yeah, and in terms of the kind of, I suppose, more sort of traditional financial media, I think Bloomberg Green, especially sort of um, Akshay Rathi's reporting is generally brilliant and sometimes has a sort of investigative flavor. Right. Um, and I wonder what other resources or training do you recommend to journalists who are new to this as well? Yeah, I mean, Centre Investigative Journalism, they just had a brilliant summer school that they run every year. Um, and uh, that has a sort of wealth of kind of OSINT and data journalism classes and workshops. Um, yeah, I could plug, uh, plug that I'll be running a Python uh, course for journalists, for those who are interested in doing a bit more automation around some of their sort of OSINT research um, or, or, or data journalism more generally uh, in the autumn as well there. I'd recommend um, working case studies. And um, if you work in a media organization um, to take uh some time uh and and think about maybe you can pitch something that is uh, sort of out of the ordinary and uh and, and use open source intelligence um we do use open source intelligence for a lot of verification cases um this, whether that's environmental or not um but that's something uh, i'd also recommend if if there's a big study coming out try to validate that um so a more sort of perhaps historically like i'm, I'm more sort of somebody who who, you know, um, yeah, go out and, and, and just does it. Um, if if you're not that kind of uh, person, then definitely um, Sam's advice is really good. Um, and then there's uh, obviously uh, lots of tool collections uh, where you uh, sometimes uh, don't need to know 
every best tool or every best approach, but like you, you really get to the nitty gritty of, of a solution with OSINT when, when you working with something and, and, and then you can just Google it. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone is leaning towards like specific types of training and like the stuff moves so quickly, right? You just kind of have to be self-taught as well in a way. But yeah, there are a lot of free resources out there as well. Um, and I just wonder if you could share your final thoughts on what you'd like to see more from the OSINT community when it comes to covering environmental investigative stories. Like what more can be done? Where do you think that people are not really covering certain aspects of this topic? I mean, I don't know if no one's covering it at the moment, but I, I think we're at, we're at obviously a sort of a pretty you know, dangerous time. I mean, dangerous time and, you know, there's an imperative to kind of act right now to accelerate the transition as much as possible to divert kind of the worst effects of climate change. And I think that, um, you know, a huge amount of money, you could argue not enough, but is is going into um, data collection. Um, you know, for instance, you know, talking about satellites that monitor methane and CO2 and, and I think it's incumbent upon us all to kind of, as Ben was saying, to learn from academics, but to also make sure that if this new data is available, to try and incorporate it or see what stories are there, because otherwise it's just sort of sitting on a shelf. And this is one of the sort of dangers of kind of, um, you know, transparency and or the the, the money can go to waste because um, there's not really a user community around it. Um, you know, I've just seen, for instance, recently Carbon Mapper that does a lot of um, remote sensing, I think using uh, drones to do sort of flyovers of CO2 and methane point sources. It's just revamped their UI. So it's really easy to use and navigate around to see where leaks are happening. And um, and they've published a whole bunch more data. So I'm really excited to see more stories on that front as well. And Ben? A, a few things. Um, one is I'd really like to see more of these environmental stories Full stop. Um, I think we have to do, do more of that kind of stuff. Uh, we also have to be better in uh, giving it more space to explain how we got to the results that everybody gets, jumps onto the train, right? And uh, does their own investigations. And coming uh, to that is, you know, having more uh, uh, journalists doing environmental investigations from countries that are affected, for example, by climate change or by corruption uh, or illegal mining efforts. I don't want to just read it in by Western journalists at The Guardian or The Washington Post. I want to, want to see these excellent also investigations by local uh, uh, newspapers like uh, the, I don't know, Mozambique Times. I don't know. Um, so local journalists uh, applying these techniques and then pe perhaps may partner with Western journalists like us, <laughs> but um, do lead uh, on the forefront of uh, of finding culprits and uh, and uh, doing their own investigations, for example, with satellite data or other data streams. So I want to see more uh, local uh, journalism uh, going into that area of open source intelligence. Great. And that's the podcast we just released yesterday. It was looking at local local journalism married with climate investigations and how do you do that, you know. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. We do need more of that. It's happening, but it could be, yeah, 
it could be better. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, thank you both so much for coming on Conversations with Data. It was really interesting hearing your perspective on this. And um, yeah, two experts focusing on environmental investigations with OSIT. It's fascinating to hear. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Tara. Thank you, Tara, for having us. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.